episode is sponsored by Powder 7. Powder 7 is a full-service ski shop and online retailer based in Golden, Colorado. They have a classic ski shop vibe with the convenience, fast shipping, and great prices of a leading online retailer. Powder 7 only sells ski gear, and they do it year-round. The folks who work there are avid skiers, and they really know their stuff. Powder 7 carries one of the ski industry's widest selections of gear, from carving skis like the Head Super Shapes to all-mountain and freeride skis like the Head Cores. They offer new and used skis from more than 30 brands. Shop online at powder7.com or feel free to call or email them and chat with their team of experts. That website again is powder the number 7.com. Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. Last year, the term climate crisis was added to the Oxford English Dictionary. Other terms like climate strikes, single use, carbon capture, and even smart charging were also recently added. The words we use to talk about the environment are evolving, but could they motivate us to take action? On this bonus episode, we bring you a guest story from the podcast Living Planet. Living Planet is a production of the German broadcaster Deutsche Welle, and it features environmental stories from around the globe. Claire Wiley has our story for today, and stick around after it's over for a behind-the-scenes conversation with one of Living Planet's hosts, Sam Baker. The so-called greenhouse effect of CO2 or carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere. Greenhouse potential in biblical terms. The problem is global warming. Action for climate change. To climate change. Climate change is the global fight against climate change. Your first climate strike. Climate justice. Climate crisis. The, The climate crisis. Climate emergency. That was a little trip down memory lane, thanks to Elon Musk, Greta Thunberg, TED speaker Chad Frischman, and Walter Cronkite on CBS from way back in 1980, reminding us that we used to talk about the environment kind of differently. I'm willing to bet it's been a while since you heard that 90s buzzword, greenhouse effect. And these days, you're probably hearing global heating instead of global warming, and climate crisis instead of climate change. Personally, I find myself saying CO2 and single-use plastic a lot more than I'd like. The way we talk about the climate is changing, but can words affect our behaviour? In October, climate crisis was added to the Oxford English Dictionary. As part of a special environment update, the book also added net zero, water insecurity, global heating, and many others. We try to be a comprehensive record of the English language, and so we're recording the words that people use. Trish Stewart is one of the Oxford English Dictionary's science editors. Her team uses software to track general usage of terms, and once they're widespread enough, they get added to the dictionary. The climate is an area of vocabulary that's changing really fast. Things like climate crisis and climate emergency are becoming a lot more popular. But we've also got the rise of more emotive language as well. So we've added eco-anxiety 
which we're seeing mentioned more and more, which is people having general feelings of anxiety or stress because of bar effects on the natural world and changes to the environment. The dictionary records the first time a term was used. And many of the climate words that we might think of as brand new actually go back a long time. Extreme weather dates back to a religious book from 1576. Climate change was first used in the 19th century. What size is your carbon footprint? Ah, the carbon footprint's there. That I don't know. Whatever it is, the whole population... British multinational oil and gas company BP popularized the term carbon footprint in a PR campaign from the early 2000s, a move that was more recently criticized as greenwashing and shifting blame onto individuals and away from the fossil fuel industry. The dictionary also shows how the meanings of environmental words are shifting. Take climate refugee. That used to mean moving somewhere to benefit your health. The first people described as climate refugees were going to California in the 19th century. And it was a bit of a disparaging word to refer to them. But now, of course, we use it to refer to people who are fleeing the effects of climate change. Even the word climate has evolved. It's often now used as shorthand for climate change. When you say someone's a climate skeptic, you're not saying they're skeptical that there is climate or that climate exists. They're skeptical of climate change. And people know that's what you mean. So that's the English language. But how is this playing out globally? I spoke to people across the world to find out what climate conversations sound like in different countries. This year, climate crisis is a hot topic because of the heavy rains and the flooding across China. So we definitely talk about it more. This is April Wan. She lives in Nanjing in eastern China. We don't really use any English words to talk about climate change. We just use direct translations from English, like climate change in Chinese is 气候变化. 气候 means climate. And uh, 变化 means change. And in Northern Ireland, John McCulloch says, while he often hears the words climate change and climate crisis... Personally, I quite like the, the word system change, as whether that's in your own home or local council or a governing body. Uh, it's, it's system change that will actually have an impact within our climate and in our environment. Marlene Kawira Kinua is based in Nairobi, Kenya. Lately, the topic of climate change has been popping up in a lot of family and friend conversation. This is because of different crises that are happening in our country, such as hunger and sometimes flooding. So you find that more people are inclined to talking about it because they are more inclined about issues of environmental conservation and maybe change of behavior to save the future. Kia ora, my name's Zoe Hobson and I live in Otipoti, Dunedin, New Zealand, Aotearoa. We talk in Aotearoa about protecting the environment, we talk about preserving the environment and also the concept of kaitiakitanga, uh, which is guardianship. In fact, the indigenous Maori word kaitiakitanga was the only word of non-English origin that the Oxford English Dictionary added in its recent update. That's because its use is increasing outside of Maori communities. 
Indigenous concepts like this one, which means to guard and protect the environment, are becoming more and more important to everyone as the climate crisis intensifies. Embedded with Indigenous languages is environmental knowledge of our planet. Rosalind Lapierre is an Indigenous writer and associate professor of environmental studies at the University of Montana. Some places in the world where Indigenous people have lived for thousands of years, they have knowledge of those places that no one else has, whether it is understanding the land and the landscape, understanding weather patterns, understanding climate, and they usually understand that information within their own languages. Indigenous languages typically have many more words for nature, our connection to the environment, and our responsibility to it. The terms are often a lot more specific too. For example, the Hawaiians, they have a different name for every moon. So every single night, there's a different moon. Um, here, I live on the Northern Great Plains and indigenous people on the Northern Great Plains had multiple words for the wind, uh, multiple words for the types of grasses um, that are here. It's the detailed knowledge contained in indigenous languages that could be key to fighting ecological disaster, Lapierre says. And it's worth pointing out that 80% of the world's biodiversity is in land that indigenous people have historically protected. Researchers have found that the loss of linguistic diversity happens in the same places as where species decline. Back in Hawaii in the 1980s, a law banning the use of the Hawaiian language was repealed. And scientists saw that as the language made a comeback, the country's population of green sea turtles also increased. It is extremely important um, that we revitalize and we strengthen indigenous languages because I think that within them, we will help find some of the solutions for our growing climate crisis. Through the Oxford English Dictionary, we're seeing solutions embedded in English words too. Because it wasn't just bleak phrases like tipping point that were recently added. Plenty of hopeful concepts were added too. Climate justice, vertical farming, carbon capture, smart charging. Wendy Bruin de Bruin is a professor of public policy psychology and behavioral science at the University of Southern California. She says that kind of language is crucial in motivating us. Adding language that elicits uh, a sense of emergency and, and, and perhaps fear um, can help to draw attention to the problem. But you have to link that kind of language with uh, suggestions of what people can do about it. If you're just scaring people, but you don't give them actions that they can do then people tend to shut off and not want to listen to the message. It's easy to feel despair when we hear terms like climate catastrophe and mass extinction, to see a frightening vision of destruction. But I think the way we're talking about the climate in 2021 gives us a glimpse of an alternative future. The words we're using show that we're finally taking this crisis seriously. Climate crisis makes it feel a little bit more like everyone's working together to try to overcome an emergency. And I think that sense of bringing people together and having a group of people working to overcome the crisis uh, does make you more likely to take action and work together with others to do something.
For DW, I'm Claire Wiley in Los Angeles. That story came to us from the podcast Living Planet. Living Planet is a show that features environmental stories from around the globe. It's a production of Deutsche Welle. I'm joined now by one of the hosts of Living Planet, Sam Baker. You may recognize Sam's voice from last week's episode of Out There. She did a great story for us about national parks and how we could start using wild spaces to help right historical wrongs. But right now, I want to talk with her about her show. Living Planet airs stories from journalists around the world, and Sam says one of her goals with the show is to give listeners the tools they need to make up their own minds about environmental issues. You know, I think so much environmental content today kind of seems like it's really telling you how to think. And I really hope to present different perspectives on environmental stories and kind of bring everything to the table for listeners so that they can think about it. Hopefully it's something they haven't encountered before or it makes them think a little bit differently about something and it allows them to make up their own minds on some of these issues. Do you have an episode or two that you particularly love or that you feel like you learned something new and surprising from? Oh, gosh. Yes. I I feel like I'm learning (laughs) new and surprising things almost every week, which which is really fun for me. It's why I enjoy this job so much. Um, One story I'm thinking of that I believe we had on a program last summer was about peatlands in Ireland. Um, And I don't know why, (laughs) like peatlands are a really important ecosystem and they're really important for keeping carbon um, out of the atmosphere. But for some reason, like what they were had just never sunken into my brain um, until we had the story from a reporter in Ireland explaining how people there had cut turf, this this deep, dense um, peatland for generations. And it took us into some of these local Irish people's homes, um, talking about the smell of peat and and how that means something to them and, and how they're working to actually change their lifestyle to not burn this carbon-dense material anymore. Um, But I think sometimes those stories that take you really by the hand personally into someone's life to explain something can can drive an idea home in a way that had never never really worked for me, um, whether I was reading about it online or maybe saw a video or something. Um, We also had one, I think it was my favorite story of last year in terms of how it was tackled, but a really tough subject um, by a reporter of ours, Andrew Basike in Kenya. And this story was about um, how child marriage and female genital mutilation has actually increased with climate change, um, which seems like, why would those things be connected? But he just told this really simple story of how drought and other environmental disasters had impacted people's livestock and crops and how essentially certain families were selling their daughters off earlier into marriage and how this was so negatively affecting young women in these communities. And it just struck such a chord with me. And it, it really brings home that climate change is affecting people 
right now in, in really profound ways. But, you know, I do want to say it's it's not all um, depressing on Living Planet. I think, you know, we try and keep an amount of wonder about the natural world in our program, too. And I think I think that's something so important to keep present when you're talking about nature and and the environment out there. Um, so we've had some really fun chats, including with an Australian frog expert last year. Uh, my co-host Charlie Shield interviewed this expert about different frog sounds and how she had created an app for cataloging all these frog sounds that people could get involved with um, and go go check out these crazy sounds, including one that sounded like a motorbike. So we try and cover both sides of the environment that way. How did you get involved with Living Planet? Yeah, so um, I used to work in Alaska, um, and I went up there to work in environmental nonprofits um, doing environmental activism work. But I kind of always had journalism in my heart, so I went back to school um, to study journalism. And then after that degree, I was looking for jobs and looking to find a landing place. And um, there was this job in the environment department at Deutsche Welle that opened up that I, I didn't really know too much about. I didn't speak German, um, but I applied for it and um, had some great conversations with the folks here and moved to Germany kind of on a whim. Um, so <laughs> it's been an adventure and um, a really exciting opportunity since then. As an American living and working in Germany and working for a German news organization, what differences do you see in terms of how Germans approach environmentalism versus Americans? Mm, That's a good question. In some ways, things seem so much easier here. Um, Like you'll notice pretty instantly upon moving here that they have all of their recycling, like beautifully sorted into different bins. And um, it seems like thinking about the environment is a little bit more integrated into everyday life. But in terms of how how they think about it here, I guess one thing that I think is true in Germany is a little bit more global perspective, or at least Europe-wide perspective, because you can't really escape that, uh, you know, you're part of the European Union and certain decisions do cross borders here. Um, so I think... I think there's a little bit more of an outward perspective as well in terms of how can we tackle these issues and how do we have to tackle these issues because, you know, the planet's all connected whether we want to have borders in one place or not. So I guess we have to have trans-border solutions to to many of these issues. Okay, what's your favorite thing about living in Germany? Oh, oh gosh, there was something the other day that I was just thinking, this is one of my favorite things about living here. What was it? Um, I will say one of my least favorite things as an American that I had to get used to was the fact that everything is closed here on Sundays or like all shops at least, which usually was my day for doing errands. So that's driven me a little bit nuts. But I do appreciate that Germans really set that day aside to do something for themselves. And a lot of times, particularly if the weather is okay, they spend it outdoors. So I do like that I feel like there's some built-in time in the week or, or people build this in for themselves to go out and go for a walk or go for a hike 
Um, and, it, you know, it doesn't have to be anything really involved. And it's certainly not the types of hikes I was used to in Alaska. But I, I do appreciate that kind of carving out of time to get outdoors. Well, Sam, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Sam Baker is one of the hosts of Living Planet. You can listen to her show wherever you get your podcasts or at dw.com slash livingplanet. I have a link to it in the show notes, and I also have links to the specific episodes of Living Planet that Sam talked about. If you missed the story that Sam did for Out There last week, it's really worth a listen. It's about national parks, how they're symbols of the nations that create them, and how we might be able to use them to create a better future. That episode is called America's Best Idea. If you're new to Out There, check out the Best of Out There playlist. It's a collection of some of our favorite episodes of all time, and it's a great introduction to the range of stories we do on the show. You can find Best of Out There on Spotify and at our website, outtherepodcast.com. The story we shared with you today about language originally aired on Living Planet last year. Special thanks to Sam Baker and her colleagues at Living Planet for letting us share it with you. Out There's advertising manager is Jessica Taylor. Our audience growth director is Sheba Joseph. Kara Schaefer is our print content coordinator. Our ambassadors are Tiffany Duong, Ashley White, and Stacia Bennett. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. Have a beautiful day, and we'll see you next week.